I know that we, uh, we respond different ways to different songs. And a couple things about that song. Um, if there's a song that we should ever applaud or a song that we should get super excited for, that's one of those songs because we are declaring the heartbeat of the Christian faith. What we believe, because we, we, our time zone is the future, and so we believe towards what we just sang. The other thing you need to be aware of, Casting Crowns has made that song current, but that's about a 100-year-old hymn that's been redone. It's a beautiful hymn, and it's, it's good theology. It sings to us of what we're really about. It's singing about a glorious day. It's singing about the glory of God. Now, last week, We heard Jesus say, my sheep know my voice. When I finished listening to Pastor Serena's sermon, I wondered, do I intentionally listen for his voice? I'm not so sure I liked her sermon, actually, because it made me uncomfortable. I don't think it's a good thing when One of our associate pastors makes the senior pastor uncomfortable when they're preaching. What do you think? But I thought to myself, what do I need to do to crowd out the noise to hear him intentionally? So let me encourage you today. You probably have already done this. We're asked to do this in many arenas, many venues. I want to ask you to silence your cell phone. I want to ask you to resist the urge to text or tweet or post or do whatever. And for just a moment, let's try to listen to God because today we are going to talk about the glory of God. What does that really look like in our world? The glory of God. We are going to enter holy ground in just a moment. That's an old hymn we just sang, but I'd like to take you to some older words from the 17th century. They're words that come from what's known as the Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism. Words that were formed to help declare and organize and say this is the heartbeat of the faith. The very first question asked, because it's a question-answer kind of document, the very first question asked and answers this question. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and I read that and I ask myself this question. Well, Jeff, is that your chief end as well? Now, it seems counterintuitive to us um, following what we call Easter Sunday to press rewind and go back to the scene of the upper room to find an answer to that question that's asked in that catechism. But that is where we go, where we must go. And and we don't just go to any scene just prior to the resurrection, not just any moment, but the moment when Judas leaves 
to do the dirty deed. We go to that moment. John chapter 13, verse 31, reads this way. When he was gone... Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. When he was gone, when Judas had left the upper room, Jesus said these things. Now, when I think about the glory of God, when I hear the song, Glorious Day, or I hear Jesus talk about being glorified, I think I am prone to imagine God's glory as some great experience or an emotional rush of feeling about God or an encounter with the sublime. Or, or, or for many, there's the idea of the glory of God as a surreal encounter with some radiating presence or powerful energy or blinding flash of power or angels or clouds and harps and we think, glory of God. But the words of Jesus bring my feet back to the ground. And they now place me, place all of us in the hard stuff of life and relationships and ethical choices. The words of Jesus make me deal with my treatment of others, my use of time, my hoarding of resources, my outlook on the poor, my, my embrace of the marginalized, my care of the person who's different than me, my use of words. I have to examine all of that because of how Jesus defines for us God's glory. He says this, continuing on, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Translated, you can't go with me to the cross. I'm going there. And then he says this, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When I read those words, I want to say to Jesus this. Jesus, it would have been so much easier and so much nicer if you would have just told us to love one another. But then you upend it all by telling us we must, and there's not any option here, but Jesus, you said we must love as you loved us. And it is here as I think of the depth to which God loved me in spite of the depth of my unloveliness that I begin to see what God's glory is about. I read a question this week that brought me up way short, just stopped me in my tracks. It's from David Luce. He writes, do we take seriously that love is at the center of the faith? I mean, think about it. What's the most famous verse we quote? Right? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the center of our faith. Do I understand that love is at the center of the faith? Not justice, not a current worship style, not the right politics, not doing God's will. All of those things are important. They all have their place. But at the center of the faith is love. And that is why Jesus says that his glory looks like a new commandment. As I have loved you, he says, so you must love one another. Remember what he said. He, he said, the Son of Man is now glorified. Jesus, Judas leaves and Jesus says, the Son of Man is now glorified. He's going to the cross. That's where he's glorified. And he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did he love them? He went to the cross where he was glorified. You see, that's the new commandment I give you, Jesus is talking about. But my question is, as I was studying this text the last couple of weeks, I kept asking, but what's so new? This has always been what God wanted of his desired people. Leviticus 19.18, you know these words, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then if you go 16 verses later, it says the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. That says something to us, I think, doesn't it? About refugees. About the people who are not like us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. Leviticus the loving of others like yourself is not new. But the loving of others in the same way Jesus loved us is the new demand of love laid upon any who claim to follow him. And I think that is a powerful, demanding call from God. Because here's the trick. It's easy to love like myself alone. Doesn't Jesus say that? Doesn't, doesn't Jesus say that? We read these words in Luke chapter 6. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Then you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. So in some ways, it is easier to just love like myself. Love that is convenient to myself. Love that suits myself and what I desire for myself. It is easy to love to make it easier on myself or make myself look better or holier or nicer. But really, I probably need to come in confession to God when I'm doing that, when my love is so conditional, and pray, Lord, let me not fool myself. That really isn't love. Lord, forgive me. God calls me, calls us to a new command that is a demand on myself to make life not about myself. And when that happens, Jesus said, then you will truly be acting as children 
of the Most High. That's when I'm acting, that's when I'm reflecting the glory of God. I'm acting like the child of the Most High. That's when the family resemblance comes out. Right? You, you heard me pray for Mary Hardwick and her family. Her brother Chuck died suddenly this week. And she's with that, her family. But Mary and I have this joke when we see each other. And she does it better than I do. But she kind of uses this funky language and she puts her hand like this and she goes, you're my twin brother from a different mother. Right? And she's, it's just our little greeting we have. And ever since I've known Mary, we just kind of started to have this little greeting. So I, I just get cracked up from that. Mary Hardwick's, I mean, imagine, Mary Hardwick's my twin sister, right? But you know, there's some truth in that. We're children of the Most High together, are we not? There's something about loving one another that shows God. We're the children of the Most High God. And it is in that act of loving one another that we reveal his likeness, the family likeness. We reveal his glory. But then take note, before Jesus gave them this command, he actually demonstrated it to them. Before he gave them words, he gave them an example. Now, if you were a journalist reporting the events of the upper room, how would you describe them? What would it be that you would write down and say, that was the upper room? That's what happened in the upper room the night before Jesus Christ was crucified. Well, the way that John comments and records it and writes about it and what he observed that night is found in the first verse of John 13. He, he says this, having loved his own were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a wonderful statement is it? He loved them to the end. There's so much that goes to my mind about what that means, but one of the things are his love just would not give up. And if you're here today, I want you to know his love will not give up on you. If you're here wondering what's next, if you're here wondering where God is, if you're here wondering if you're loved by God, his love will not give up on you or on me. He loved them to the end. But then after John records those words, what happens next? Jesus washes their feet. Jesus breaks bread with them. Right? Including Judas. Jesus does not dismiss Judas from the upper room. Jesus dismissed Judas from the upper room. He could have done that before communion before the washing of the feet that makes more sense in our world does it not 
But, but Jesus washes Judas' feet. Jesus hands him that meal. He does not dismiss Judas from that upper room until he shows him loving hospitality. Taking on the form of the most basic servant in that day to wash dirty feet. And then he shows him a commitment of covenant love through the meal. He loved Jesus all through his betrayal. All the way through. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, that takes a specific kind of love. A very specific kind of love. It is a love that shows that the glory of God looks like a cross. Glory, in God's economy, glory looks like sacrifice. Glory looks like pain. Glory looks like suffering for someone else. And and the problem with this, and the reason why so many people, including the disciples, including the religiously elite, including Pilate, the reason why they had such a problem with this is this is a reversal of the cultural values of Jesus' time. And the reason why we often have a problem with it, it is a reversal of the cultural values of our own time. What Jesus is doing is a veiled rebuke at the systems of power that pursue self-glory and self-honor and self-promotion. Whether it be the systems of governments or the systems of corporations or the systems of churches or the system of one person's ego. But it is in that, this, this love, that sacrifices that does not think first of self but of others, it is that that we taste the secret sauce to the glory of God in the world. Revealing what real glory is about. Paul says this about the mysterious power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, when he shared about the mystery of the gospel, he called it the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words that Christ in me is the hope of glory, when I recognize that that's where the riches are of this life we have with him, but it's the hope of glory. What a statement that is. That is the glory of God for us. And that is the glory of God through us. I think we think of glory as something spectacularly outside of us. But that's not what God thinks. Remember the Old Testament, the glory came and inhabited the very temple. But in the New Testament, we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? And the very presence of God inhabits us. Glory isn't something that's supernaturally, existentially beyond me, according to the truth of Scripture, according to God's plan, Christ in me is the hope of glory. 
glory of God for us, the glory of God through us, because the very glory of God lives in us. And it is so hard to wrap our minds around that. But everywhere you step as a follower of Jesus is holy ground. Where are you going to step this week? Where are you going to go this week? Where are you going after church today? It's holy ground. Not because there's something out there, because there, but because there's someone in here. The very glory of God living within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Stepping into the holy ground of what the primary aim of being human is. My friends, the glory of God looks like you. That's according to Jesus. It's according to Paul. It's all through the Bible. The glory of God in the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ looks like you. He looks like me. He looks like us. He looks like his church. In fact, Paul even writes that the church is the manifold wisdom of God to all creation. Tells the Ephesians that. What a powerful thought that is. This is the glory of God. It looks like you. One of the devotionals that I regular, regularly read is from um, a group that's located in the Asbury Theological Seminary and it's called Seedbed. And part of the seedbed um, ethos, if you will, is a covenant prayer, a creed that they have developed for this ministry. And this is what that, that creed says. Today, I sow for a great awakening. Today, I stake everything on the promise of the Word of God. I depend entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the same mind in me that was in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is good news, and Jesus is in me, I am good news. Today I will sow the extravagance of the gospel everywhere I go and into everyone I meet. Today I will love others as Jesus has loved me. Today I will remember that the tiniest seeds become the tallest trees and that the seeds of today become the shade of tomorrow, that the faith of right now becomes the future of the everlasting kingdom. Today, I sow for a great awakening. Love those words. But did you catch it? I hope you caught it. Remember, we're talking about the glory of God here. Christ in you is the hope of glory, right? Well, listen again to what they write. Because Jesus is good news, and Jesus is in me, I am good news. Do you know that you're good news for the world? You're good news. I'm good news. If Jesus Christ dwells in us, we're good news because we don't look at the world through the lens of secularity. 
We don't look at the world through the lens of empire-based power. We, we don't look at the world in terms of, you know, dog-eat-dog consumerism and greed. No. We look at the world through the lens of a cross. We look at the world in the lens of a living Christ who sacrificed for us. Because Jesus is good news and Jesus is me, I am good news. Then they go on. Today I will sow the extravagance of the gospel everywhere I go and into everyone I meet. The word gospel literally means good news. I'm going to sow that good news everywhere I go and into everyone I meet. And how am I going to do that? Today I will love others as Jesus has loved me. So the question that comes to me this morning is this. What is the level of my love for others? And even more specifically, what about for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at Community Chapel? How are you doing there? How am I doing there? What is the level I have of my love? And remember the definition for love connected to the cross is always seeking the highest and best good for another at the expense of personal sacrifice. So what is the level of my love for my brothers and sisters at Community Chapel? Another question that's been haunting me is adapted from Francis Chan's latest book. And um, I'm not so sure I like this question either, but it's asking me, it's, it's speaking to me, it's you know, kind of querying my heart. When unbelievers are part of our services, do they observe anything supernatural about the way we love one another? Do people get it that we love one another? When, when someone comes here today or some Sunday or some event and, and they, at that point in their lives, are not following Jesus, do they see how we love one another here? And you see, that's like super purpose, super important, because that's the purpose of the glory of God, to reveal Jesus to the world around us. Verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this Jesus will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. One another. The church is an experiment and a revelation of love. What love is to look like. What love is to act like. What love is to sound like. What love is to do. Because the world is aching for love. What's at the center of the gospel? What's at the center of our faith? Love. Why is that at the center? Because is that not the greatest need of mankind? So we are the, we are the, we are the demonstration of what God wants to reveal. See, the true evidence of the power of Easter being more than an annual religious day is how well we love like Jesus. 
The proof positive that we are followers of Jesus is not how well we can defend the faith or how righteous we can live our lives or how much scripture we can memorize and quote. All of those things are very important. They all are important. They all have a place in our faith. But the proof positive of discipleship is one thing, according to Jesus, one thing, how well we love one another. Now, remember what Jesus said when he said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 31. I want you to imagine the people you're going to encounter this week. I want you to think about where you're going to be. I want you to think about the people you're having the most difficulty with. I want you to think about the hard places you're going to have. What would happen if the people observing you, observing me, would say, well, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, in her, in them. Imagine that. Imagine if people around you, around me, oh, that it would be so. I confess to you it's not always so for me, for sure. But imagine if people looked and said, now, now the Son of Man is glorified. Just by watching our lives. Remember, when Jesus said that, his next move was heading to the cross. Was loving with sacrifice. Was not thinking of himself. Was focused on serving others. I wonder if if we did that. They may not use these terms. But those watching our lives, would they say, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him, in her, in them. So what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is that my chief end as well? Well, how I love others will be how I answer that question. What about you? Our worship team is going to come this morning. As we pray before we sing, it's a pretty simple prayer, I think, for us today. And the prayer is simple, so simple, but so critical, so crucial. Because the truth is, you and I, in and of ourselves, can't love like Jesus. Wish we could, but we can't. The really good news is, we have him living inside us. And he can love through us as we let him love us. So the prayer is pretty simple. Lord, help me to love like you by letting you love through me as I receive your love for me. Stand with me this morning. And just for a moment, just for a moment, I invite you to bow your head with me. I invite you just to ask the Lord, speak to him, listen 
for his voice. During the message today, was there some place in that time span where a person came to your mind where maybe you recognize you haven't loved them as Christ would? Maybe you were thinking about someone who just loved you just unconditionally, just sacrificially, and you just, it brought a smile to your heart. And you just want to thank God. Maybe you wonder why you don't love more. Could you ask God today to reveal to you how much you are loved? For that is where loving others truly comes from, by being loved by God. Lord, we're overwhelmed by the thought that because you are good news and you live inside of us, that we are good news to our world. We're overwhelmed by the thought that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And so, as we love, we are the glory of God to the world. Not some far-removed spiritual encounter or experience, but in the flesh and blood interactions of our lives. I confess to you, Lord God, all the places where I'm not that, where I'm not the glory of God. Forgive me for the places where I'm the glory of Jeff. I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that you will help us to love like you have loved us. And to remember how well you've loved us. And may we live out of that, we pray. In Christ's name. So may we go and may we love one another as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then the world will know that we're his disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Greet one another in his love today.